You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. Ancient people drew on rocks. Sometimes they drew things that looked like real animals that we see in nature. Sometimes they drew animals which are gone now, like giant hairy elephants with tusks. And sometimes they drew things that don't look like anything we see today, or at least that most of us don't see, like the hairy man pictograph of the Tule River Reservation. Does this artwork show a real and natural animal? Does it show a creature of myth? The arguments, like the hairy man itself, tend to be long and drawn out. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today we're going to be talking with friend of the show, archaeologist Ken Fader, about some long-debated aspects of Bigfoot research that cross into his area of expertise. In this edit of our interview, I've beeped out Ken's colorful language. If you'd like to hear the less censored version, our Patreon feed has the unedited, uh, full sailor version of the audio at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We'll be discussing some work by Kathy Moskowitz-Strain, an archaeologist who's written about the possibility that the hairy man of the Thule River Reservation may represent evidence of Bigfoot. Hopefully, this episode will be the first of at least two parts dealing with this, because I really want to talk to Kathy about her research as well. We've been corresponding, and the fact that I don't have that interview yet is because of my own issues getting it scheduled, not because of a lack of cooperation on her part. So, if all goes well, she'll come on and answer some of the questions that Ken raises in this interview, and we'll talk more about her work in the Bigfoot community. We'll be talking about a set of pictures showing a figure known as Mayak Dutat. That's not the right way to say it, but I couldn't find a good recording of how the native speakers say it. And so, the first word, Mayak, looks a lot like the word Mayaka, which is a river in Florida, that was the location of a somewhat famous set of skunk ape photos that looked like an orangutan peering out through saw palmettos. Although, 
The idea that sounds like somehow equals is like is common in amateur research. I just want to point out that these words are spelled differently and are from very, very different parts of the country, literally opposite ends, and they're completely unrelated aside from a visual similarity. We're going to be talking about pictographs, but another kind of paleo art you'll hear about is petroglyphs, and then there are also geoglyphs. Let's have a quick explanation of that. Pictographs are pictures that are drawn on rocks. Petroglyphs are pictures that are carved into rocks. And geoglyphs are features that are defined shapes made out of stacking durable material like earth into circles or stars or other shapes, that sort of thing. Check out the show notes to get photos and articles that we discussed in this episode. The images especially should be helpful in making this episode make more sense. Monster dog. Okay, so let's... We're uh, recording now? Yeah, now we're recording. Yes. And uh, welcome <laughs> back, Ken. Yeah. Oh, oh, no. I, I thought I wanted to get I needed to get that out of my get, system. Get it out of your system, right? <laughs> no problem. It's okay. I, I look forward to editing all of our episodes, Ken. So. <laughs> I, I, I point out to my students, and it's a point of pride for me, that if you look for the Monster Talk episodes that I've done, and there, as you look on iTunes, there's like the parental advisory for, for all of them. them. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Unsuitable for most everybody. It's part of your charm. It, it is. But I swear, I, I, I know a lot of our listeners have been inspired to get interested in archaeology just because of your conversations with us, which is great. That's, yeah, hey, that's all good. That's all good. Absolutely. So, and you know, let's be honest, out in the workplace, you're going to run into this kind of salty talk. So, yeah. <laughs> now, now and then, yeah. yes. I, uh, I had a, uh, a colleague who had, again, rather a, a rich language, and he was – he was told um, by somebody at a in a, um, a faculty meeting that he really shouldn't speak like that. He should say he should substitute other terms for those those um, those terrible words that he was using. And he was literally told that if you're really angry, you should say something like fiddlesticks. And the guy was totally serious. Sugar, shivers, sugar. That was my mother. Oh, sugar. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my mom wouldn't even say that because she said, "You know what that means." So yeah, that she didn't even like the euphemisms. That's funny. Oh my god! My best friend mom. You, you she, started, she would say "sweetie" when she was really mad. Oh, oh. sweetie! <laughs> you, you knew it was trouble at that point. <laughs> oh god! My mother tells me that when I was a, a tiny person and just getting a getting a hold of the English language, that I was so angry at one point and I wanted a curse, and the only curse I came up with was. Toilet bowl. <laughs> Ooh, that's you know, offensive. But here's the thing. You know, actually, I was putting it together. That kind of is appropriate. Is yeah, yeah. more or less appropriate. <laughs> oh, toilet bowl. Oh, uh, my, my two-year-old already says it all. Oh, he's going to be three tomorrow. But yeah, he, he, he says everything. <laughs> I've seen the videos. <laughs> you have. Yeah. You have. It's true. <laughs> well, you know, to be honest, Ken, though, we didn't invite you on just to reflect on your salty language. All right, that's well, fine. We might have. No, well, this was okay. be very psychologically purging for me. But if you don't want that, no, 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 you can live with that. Say we don't want it. Let's make it topical. Can we talk right, about the fucking rocks? No. <laughs> <laughs> can we just refer to them as the FRs? You know, like that. <laughs> so, so I'm for a long time. I've wanted to talk about the the work that was done by a folklorist. Uh, I think that's the right term for Kathy Strange. She's done a lot of work. Well, actually, she's an archaeologist. Is she an archaeologist? Her, okay. her background, I think she has a master's degree, but yeah, she, her background she is an archaeology. Well, and she encountered this 
firsthand when she was doing an archaeological archaeological research on the Indian Reservation, the Tule River Indian Reservation in California. She was doing the work, I, I assume, for the tribe. I mean, the tribe knew about it. And so she kind of, I'm sure she knew about this before, but so that's that was her entry into this. Outstanding. So she starts as an archaeologist. Okay, yeah. so I already stand way corrected. And uh, apologies to Kathy because when Ken reached out to me about this topic, I immediately wanted to talk to him, and I probably should have reached out to her and asked if she wanted to come on the show and talk. So I'll reach out to her. We'll do this in out of order if she wants to talk to us. But yeah, sure. Um, but let's let's talk about this because I'll, while I've never talked to her, her work comes up all the time in big. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and, and it, oh, can, I, can I can I preface it a little bit with how I got interested in the Harry Man? Uh, pictograph at in Painted Rock um, Rock Shelter on the Tule River Indian Reservation. Absolutely. If you'll yeah. start yeah. by answering my first question, which is what is Painted Rock and why is this rock art site so well known in the Bigfoot community? Painted Rock is this, it's a rock shelter. Um, you know, it, it's not a solution cavern. It's not like Howe Caverns or, or Luray Caverns or Carlsbad Caverns. It's a rock shelter and rock shelters ordinarily are just a fortuitous um, uh Positioning of rocks done by glaciers, done by um, earthquakes, done by tectonic uplift or whatever that creates an, um, uh, a little cave with a ceiling and a back and sides. And that's what this is. It's not a solution cavern. It's a, a relatively small rock overhang. And on in this rock shelter, uh, both on the overhang and the back, are uh, pictographs and petroglyphs, mostly pictographs. Pe petroglyphs are these... Um, images that are scratched into the rock where you're uh, um, revealing a lighter or darker color beneath the external surface and that creates the image or you're actually painting like the, like the paintings uh, in the, the cave paintings of, of Europe there are plenty of pictographs in North America and this is this is these are this is one series of them and there are a whole a bunch of critters some of which are part of or represented in the Thule River Indian creation story and there's a bunch of specific images that we can talk about the one that that we are focusing on here and the one that excites Bigfoot researchers is this image on the back it's about eight feet tall it's maybe six feet across and it appears to be it is in fact an upright creature so it's on its back legs and it is called the hairy man for reasons that we'll discuss in a little bit and you know, hey, wait, it's big, it's eight feet tall, it's standing upright, um, it appears maybe to be all hairy, my God, that must be Bigfoot, but maybe not, um, but we'll talk about that. That's big, though, that's really big, is that like IMAX for paleo art? Yeah, I think it is. It is kind of enormous. Well, you, usually the stuff that that I've seen in, in North America is smaller than that. But there are some some very very large images that are larger than life anthropomorphs. The critters that are that look kind of human. They've got uh, they've got forward facing eyes. They've got legs. They've got arms. Um, their their body is long and narrow. Um, those are anthropomorphs, and there are other anthropomorphs, especially in the American Southwest, that are about that large. And uh, this the, this pictograph that was was created by the Yakuts tribe is that how you pronounce the name? Right. That I mean that's that is kind of the language group. The specific group of people, the, the tribe that owns the reservation that sees this rock shelter as a sacred place, are the Tule River Indians. T U L E. Okay. 
But I mean, that's it's always the case that 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 these individual individual tribes are part of larger groups, and ultimately, you know, there's there's a, lang- a linguistic group that includes a whole bunch of different uh, specific tribes um, that all speak a language that's mutually intelligible. So, so like oh, here, in, here in the Northeast, there are lots of, you know, there are the, in Connecticut, there are the Tungsis and the Pequot and the Mohegan and, uh, there are the, and the Narragansett, but they're all part of a larger um, lang- linguistic group. All those languages were mutually intelligible. So Go can you it. tell us a little bit about the, the Thule River Indians? Well, the the modern Thule River Indians they have a, a reservation. It's it's near the nearest city. I guess is Porterville, which is in kind of Southern California. It's a few hours drive north and east of Los Angeles. Uh, the reservation is about fifty four thousand acres, um, and they the people who live there now are almost certainly the descendants of the folks who put this rock art together uh, 500, 1,000 years ago. It's not entirely sure, not entirely certain. And these folks were, like a lot of the Indians in California, they were in part hunter-gatherers. Um, that was the the acorns, the, the harvest of acorns was a very important part of the subsistence of uh, the, the native people uh, on the West Coast, and the ability to to leach out the tannic acid and to make an, uh, a, a meal out of the out of crushed acorns was an important part of their diet. They fished, they hunted, and only later on in history did they become agricultural. They um, um, uh, embrace agriculture. So these were, for the most part, uh, hunting and gathering people. Um, they're really well known for their baskets, and that's again a typical thing in California. Is that just spectacular and amazing basketry? It's an important part of their material culture. And so they they fished, they hunted, they collected wild plants, and acorn meal was a was an important part of the diet. So that that got added into everything. Oh, unless it was stolen by the hairy man, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's that's something that we really will talk about. Was what what function the hairy man actually played um, in their folklore, and I think that's an important issue that to discuss. Um, and it's also really important to, to for us to discuss. Well, when did people start calling this image? This who is the the image of the hairy man who is in the in the the Tule River language. It's Mayakta dot. That is not the correct pronunciation, but that's how that's how it's spelled. M a y a k d. I think apostrophe a t a t. So I'm, I I know that I am not pronouncing that correctly. One of my informants there pronounced it, and I don't. I couldn't repeat how he how he phrased it or how he pronounced it. Um, go with hairy man. Yeah, we can go with hairy man, absolutely. But that's now there's that, that's an interesting point, and we can we can talk about that right now. And this is, I think, a common issue that turns up in folklore, and that is we need to remember always that these words that when we speak them in English, they have been translated from another language, and that is not an a necessarily objective process. It's not like, oh yeah, that word exactly means this. There's always this finessing. Um, like, for example, most people know that the word orangutan, and that's the name we apply to this, one of the great apes, it's a great ape of Southeast Asia, living in Borneo, um, they're the, these beautiful red apes, real large, and we call them orangutan, and in the, lang- the Malay language, orangutan means person of the forest. That's literally how it's translated into English. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, the, the, the people on Borneo don't really believe they are human beings that live in the forest. It's a whimsical way of, of, def, of defining these, of naming these creatures. It's a way of recognizing, you know what, orangutans don't fit very neatly into a particular box. They don't fit very neatly into the categories we have of animal and human. Because, well, yeah, they're animals, they're not human, but my God, they kind of look a lot, they look more like human beings than tapirs do or elephants do. And so they're, they're this kind of, they, they inhabit this unique linguistic space. And so by calling the orangutan, if we translate it literally again, it means person of the forest, but that is, that is, we are not justified therefore in saying, oh, the people on Borneo, they think orangutans are just, are just hairy people. That's not really true. And that's one of the issues we, I have with, with this literal translation of Mayak dot dot into hairy man. Does that necessarily mean that the Tule River people think that that, that creature is a hairy man? Oh my God, that's, that, that's Bigfoot because he's really tall and he's hairy. That's a really good point. So, so that here's the deal. So, I ended up on the Tule River Indian Reservation because I'm doing research for yet another book, and I know that that the listeners of this show are going to say, "There's Fader flogging one of his books, shamelessly flogging one of his books," and that's really unfair and untrue. I am very much ashamed at <laughs> flogging the book. No, so, I'm not shameless. Hell no. You got a baby anyway, feed, right? <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? No kidding. So. You guys were gracious enough to allow me to drone on and on about my 50 Sites book um, some time ago. This the my Ancient America, 50 Sites to See for Yourself. And even though wait, it's not wait, directly, what, what was that like, again? That's it. The, the book is it's you know, and it's really quite appropriate for birthdays for July 4th, for example, <laughs> Independence Day. Celebrate America. It's available. By buying it. It's available at the uh, bookstore near you, Amazon. Uh, you can buy it directly from the publisher, and I can give you a, a, a steep discount on those books. I will come to your house and sign them. I really won't, but, uh, but I'm saying that because you know, I, I can't. So, but anyway, so that book, uh, uh, by the way, I mean, people here are, are waiting for me to drop an F-bomb. So, and here's what I'm going to do, though. I'm quoting somebody, <laughs> all right? So I actually had a listener uh, a listener of um, the Monster Talk who bought a copy of, that's Ancient America, 50 Archaeological Sites to See for Yourself, Roman and Littlefield. He bought a copy for, like, his dad, who apparently is also a fan of the show. And he inscribed the book with, some, it's a, with something like, uh, enjoy this book from Kenny fucking Fader. And he says, oh my God, <laughs> it's become my name. And now I, you guys know Amanda Palmer, right? Um, yeah. I, mean, I don't know her. But... Dolls and and you know she has had her own career. She's enormously talented and she's married to Neil Gaiman. I mean, that's the whole package, yeah, right? She's living the life. And she, she, I've seen her actually in concert a couple of times and both times she was introduced as Amanda fucking Palmer. And I'm thinking, whoa, <laughs> who owns that? Is, does she own that? Am I, am I stepping on her, on her name? Uh, or maybe we're related somehow. It's, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a maiden name. Yeah. Uh, something like that. I tell you, her, so, her so, song about Judy Bloom just brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that, but it's a good one. So, and you know that that Reese, apparently she's a big fan of Weird Al, and in some recent Weird Al song, she's singing background vocals. That's awesome. How, how strange Weird is Al's that? Weird Al's awesome. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, well, I love Weird Al. So, 
so anyway, so when that book, the ancient that's ancient America, fifty archaeological sites of yourself, Roman and Littlefield, when that book was like put to bed, so it's like October of twenty sixteen, and it's meaning all the all the heavy lifting has been done, and now the thing is going off to the printers, and. There's nothing more I can change. It, it's done. And I had a, a nice long telephone conversation with my editor, Leanne Silverman. She's since moved on, but that moved on sounds like she died. No, she's just yeah, not does. working for Roman and Littlefield. Um, so anyway, so we had this nice long kind of – we were decompressing after – putting together a book is a long and arduous process and it's not just the the author. It's the editors mm -hmm. and it's the copy editors and all the folks working the publisher. And so – and so Leanne asked me a question, which is not the question you want to hear um, when you've just finished like two solid years of writing a book. And that question was, so Kenny, when are you going to start working on Ancient America 2, 50 more sites to see for yourself? <laughs> and uh, Karen can speak to this much better than I can. And that's kind of the equivalent of you've just given birth seconds mm -hmm. later. Somebody asks you, so, Karen, when are you going to start working on number two? <laughs> oh, yeah. You've, you've got to give him a little brother or sister. Yeah. You, you, you sort of not. You need to give it a little bit of a rest. You need to decompress, yeah. Right. So <laughs> physically and literally, I guess. But but so anyway, so I said to Lee, you know, I, I froze. It was like, oh, my God. You can't be serious. And it's maybe the, it's those moments that become this kind of inspirational because I had I had nothing planned and I, I didn't know she was going to ask this question and so I said oh Leanne come on man and then somewhere deep inside my reptilian brain the, it, it, my mouth came out with this well Leanne you know I'm really interested in archaeological frauds I have this other book frauds myths and mysteries science and pseudoscience and archaeology that's Oxford University Press so uh, you know I'm interested in that and I've just written this 50 sites book imagine a book that kind of combines the two I don't know 30 or 40 really bizarre archaeological sites strange archaeological sites fake archaeological sites to see for yourself and there was this this real long pause uh, uh, you know, following the theme, a pregnant pause. <laughs> yeah, so a pregnant pause. I don't hear Blake laughing uproariously, and I, I, did I think he's amused. No, no, oh, no. What coughing. it is is I'm sitting here thinking, dark archaeology, darkeology. So yeah, that's what's wrong with my oh. brain. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, listen. One of the I'm things. Married, I'm not married to the current title. Yeah. So, but anyway, we'll give you. But anyway, so there's this long quiet, and I think that Leanne is going to say. Okay, Ken, we're done talking and hang yeah, up. Need a break. But instead, <laughs> she says, "Wow, that's a really cool idea." All right. At which point, then pretended like, "Oh yeah, of course it is, Leanne. <laughs> I've been thinking about this for months." Um, and as of this minute, the manuscript is done. I've visited all the sites, um, and the manuscript is at the publisher and copy editing and some review, and maybe early late 2018, more likely early 2019 the current title is strange archaeology a field guide to 40 of the most improbable sites archaeological sites in north america and there are fake sites and there are follies and there are misinterpreted sites and all kinds of crazy crazy stuff it was a hell of a lot of fun to do and i say that these are sites that you can visit for yourself in a few instances you can't because they're entirely hallucinatory they're not <laughs> real places so one of the famous examples of that is, and it's in my book, is the. Do you have you heard about the the lost city 
in the Grand Canyon. Is this is different from the Lost Cave, right? Or the the cave, right? It's not the same. The Lost City is in the Lost Cave, and this is most <laughs> spectacularly ancient. And the artifacts found in the cave are this kind of a weird pastiche of Egyptian and Tibetan and Native American, and it's gold, and there's writing all in it, and you can't actually go there because it doesn't exist. Also, and, the dangerous lizard people, because that's the other that, reason. So that it could be that could be another reason. <laughs> Robert or, Howard fans you know, will because, understand that reference. Sorry, <laughs> because it's in a national park. The government knows about it and is trying to keep you from going. Oh, yeah. And then, did you know there was also there is a subterranean hidden city that was reported um, in Moberly, Moberly, Missouri. It was found in this coal miner. Uh, it was in a coal mine, and it went, hit the papers, and it got national attention for a while of a, of a lost city with giants, skeletons of giants, and all kinds of cool artifacts. And I think it was it was a, it was an April Fool's Day joke. Apparently, Jason Colavito <laughs> does a great job of that. So those are in there. I also include sites um, that are rock art sites that have been interpreted in ways that archaeologists, they're real sites, that in ways that archaeologists and anthropologists or ethnographers don't really embrace. Um, for example, there are a number of sites in North America where there's rock art that has been interpreted as um, representations of extraterrestrial aliens visiting and commiserating with Native Americans. So you, you get a little Von Daniken in there. Oh, yeah, there's Von Daniken in there. I actually, I went to the International UFO Museum in Roswell, New Mexico, to see some of the stuff that they have there. where They have photographs of rock art that I've been to that they're claiming, oh, well, there's no other interpretation. These are Native Americans painting images of extraterrestrial aliens. By the way, I, I highly recommend going to the International UFO Museum. It's a great place. It is, and it's, it's got, it's got, not only does it have great, interesting exhibits, but it's also very well air-conditioned, which in Roswell is kind of is a really important. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing about it, though, is it's it's in an old, like, abandoned movie theater, and so the, the marquee in front is really, it's, it's like the old movie marquee, and the vibe I got, and this is not, I don't mean this as in any way critical. I mean this as kind of in an affectionate way. The museum itself looks like the the local high school prom has taken over the, the, this this old theater, and the theme is extraterrestrial aliens. That's the vibe. <laughs> and actually, when I was there, when I went there, the woman behind the the the, the you know the, the counter where they were selling tickets, which almost certainly is where they used to sell popcorn. Um, was kind of distracted. I went up to buy my tickets and she's like looking around me and I, I say, is everything okay? She goes, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, we were expecting a busload of tourists and they're like 20 minutes late and so we're a little concerned. So of course I lean in and say to her, oh my God, you don't think they've been abducted, do you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and she looks at me and, and she doesn't miss a beat, totally seriously says, oh no, they're probably just stuck in traffic. Yeah. <laughs> to which my response to that is I lean in and I tell her, yeah, that's what they want you to think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then she got the joke and she thought it was pretty funny. Um, so, so, so there's that. But the Hairy Man was part of a series of sites that I went to that are crypt cryptozoologically based or themed. So, for example, I also, in my, in my travels, went to Black Dragon Canyon, which is in the San Rafael Swell in, in Utah. It's a beautiful, geologically, an amazing and gorgeous place. And Black Dragon Canyon has a, 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 um, 
a pictograph that if you look on the websites of young earth creationists, they will tell you, uh, no doubt about it, it's the painting of a pterodactyl. And so the argument here is that, see, Indians and pterodactyls were living in Utah at the same time. And the painting is probably a thousand years old, maybe 2000 at the most. So therefore, the earth is only 6000 years old. Pterodactyls and other dinosaurs were alive and living in Utah um, in the not too distant past, within those 6000 years of Bishop Usher's um, length of the earth being around. His dating of the earth. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. So 4004 BC thing. And so that that's what led me to contact the Thule River Indian tribe to ask if I could get permission from them to go and see the Hairy Man pictograph personally. And that, that's something I really want to make, make abundantly clear. These The Thule River folks could not have been any nicer. They were just amazing, amazingly cooperative. And when I arrived, uh, one of the the, the, the folks, who, uh, I arrived, I was told specifically, listen, you got to stop at the um, the tribal headquarters and then get permission to go. And I did that. And there was one guy in the in the headquarters who said, oh, yeah, just just drive up the road. You can go see it. But the tribal chairman was there when this was going on. And he interrupted that and said, no, 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 no. We frown up. We frown upon that. And that was the exact language he used. That place is a sacred place to us. And we don't want people who are not tribal members going there on their own. And it's something, again, to remind folks, Indian reservations are not public lands. They're not, it's not a national park. It's not a national forest. It's not a national monument. There are national monuments and national parks on Indian land, on reservations. But that land, it's, it's private. It, the, the equivalent of me going to Harry Man. The, to the painted rock and looking at it without getting any permission would be the equivalent of somebody, you know, go just walking into Blake's house and looking at those those lovely uh, uh, paintings he has of Elvis and and President Kennedy. There, there's also you a have, hairy man here, but that's a different story, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. We don't need to the go shirt could be about Blake. Yeah, exactly. So, but anyway, so so in fact, what happened was that the they I think. This is a sore point among the Thule River people because I think there are folks who have in the past gone to see that because of their curiosity but haven't given the the Indians their due and asking them permission and and being taken there by an Indian guide. Now I was taken there by this guy Zach who was a young a young guy, young adult um who again was incredibly nice and generous to him. I mean, he took me there and answered some questions that I had about how he viewed the hairy man and how he viewed Bigfoot. And then at the end, just mind-blowing, number one, I, you know, I'm a typical American. I figured, oh, this guy's been really nice to me. I got to slip him a 20. He absolutely steadfastly refused to take any money from me. And in fact, they, he gave me a gift. We, we went back to tribal headquarters and he and the tribal chairman uh, handed me this book, hardcover book that has in fact a, a drawing, a line drawing of the hairy man pictograph on its cover. And it's a compendium of, of um, folk tales told by elders in the tribe in the mid, and this is, I actually need a little bit of help from, from you guys here. The, the, the tales were, were collected in the mid 1970s, 1975. And Kathy Moskowitz-Strain, who we've talked about, who's written these two wonderful, wonderful pieces that I don't necessarily agree with on, on this particular, on this site, her, she herself says that until 1975, nobody is calling the hairy man Bigfoot. 
Mm. He's recognized as a spirit being, and it's it's only in the mid seventies when now people are saying, "Ooh, I wonder if that's Bigfoot." What's important? Is there something important about the mid seventies in Bigfootology, where now suddenly it's reached a point where everybody knows about Bigfoot, and you see a a, a pictograph of a a tall hairy creature, and you're going to even question the fact or even suggest that it's Bigfoot? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a cumulative so- effect. Uh, you get the Patterson Gimlin film in the late sixties, and then you get the uh, uh, you get these nineteen seventies movies like uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek, The Mysterious okay, sure. Monsters, um, and and you also get uh, In Search of in the seventies, uh, which sort of like boosts it amplifies the story of Bigfoot tremendously. <laughs> Right. You, there's mm-hmm. several. There's uh, Sasquatch, the legend of Bigfoot. And there, there's several. I'm actually planning on doing an episode about the 70s and Bigfoot because there's a lot of movies to go through. And some of them are really fun and some of them are really horrible. Yeah. So the 70s were when really Bigfoot became part of American pop culture in a big way. So th- here's and again, this is my interpretation that, you know, we've, we've got records of this particular piece of rock art, which is it is unique. Um we have a record of it that is somebody writing about it as early as the, I think it's 1889. This guy's Garrick Mallory, um, and he does this, this book, The Picture Writing of the American Indians, and there's, it's, a, it's this beautiful plate after plate after plate of, of petroglyphs and pictographs. And he has a full-size plate in that book, it's black and white, of the back of the of the rock shelter, so not the ceiling. But the, 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 for my money... It, the rock art in the the rock shelter, the, the hairy man, is the least impressive. <laughs> Not the least, but certainly isn't the most impressive of the rock art. The ceiling, and maybe because it's better preserved, there's this amazing long, I, I think it's a millipede, but you can call it a centipede, in red and black and white. And then there's this beautiful image of what clearly looks to be some kind of a dog-like animal. And and my my interpreter my my guide said yeah that's a coyote and he appears to be eating or trying to eat this large white circle or light circle and zach told me that's coyote swallowing the moon and there is in fact a folktale about coyote seeing an image of reflection of the moon in like some still water and he wants to eat it and he drowns and and he's brought back to life by snake and so this it it's just super impressive and it's like you know it's it's, I don't know, five or six feet across. So it's really impressive. But the hairy man, of course, is the thing that, that gets all this interest. But again, so Mallory does the back of the cave. Nowhere in Mallory's book does he call it hairy man. Um, mm. He doesn't call it hairy. And in fact, and that's and this is, again, Jason Colavito has talked a little bit about this. And that was certainly my impression when I looked at the, at the image. It doesn't look particularly hairy. There are lines that go through the arms, but they start above the above the the guy the the critter's arms and go through it. So it doesn't really appear to be fur or hair. But but anyway, in any event, to me the most the most interesting thing about this from a folklore perspective is the story told by and what Kathy Musquistrain repeats it in the two articles that that I've um, read. One is online. One's a the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, which I think is an online journal. And then there's this Bigfoot information website that has an, another article by her. They cover some of the same ground. The older article, what, what Moskowitz Strains clearly says, no, this is Bigfoot. 
This is definitely Bigfoot. It's not some fake pretend animal. It's definitely Bigfoot. In the more recent article that dates like in 2012, that was that's the early 2000s. In the 2012 article, she really hedges her bets and says, well, obviously this isn't sufficient evidence to prove that Bigfoot really exists, but it's an important thing to study, and I agree with that 100%, in, in understanding the role of Mayak Datat in Thule River um, Indian cosmology and in their origin stories and in their their folklore and that's 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 great so the but the story told by her and what she's doing is really repeating the stories as told by the Thule River elders that collected into in 1975 the book that was handed to me was published in 2008 and she in her article she quotes some of the same people that are that are cited in this book but the story basically is really cute the 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 creation or origin of human beings is the result of a work work by a committee of animals. Now, understand, while the names of these animals we recognize as real animals, these are critters who can, number one, speak, and number two, they have the ability to create human beings. So they're not like regular animals. Uh, Eagle is the CEO of this corporation. Eagle is in charge of everything. Um, and then each... What's, what's beautiful about the story is that every different animal suggests giving to people a characteristic that is iconic or unique to that particular species. So, for example, fish chimes in, you know, we ought to give people the uh, ability to swim. And everybody else around the table, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then... A turtle says, listen, I'm really good at defending myself because of my shell. We really ought to give people the ability to defend themselves. And then Owl says, well, I'm a great hunter. We ought to give people the ability to hunt. And Lizard, with his long fingers, says, you know, we ought to give them long fingers so that they can make baskets and do other cool stuff with their fingers. And everybody agrees to that. And here's where Mayak Dadat comes into the picture. Coyote. Now, Coyote is an interesting character, and it's kind of across all, or just about all of Native America. Coyote is viewed as a trickster. He's not a bad guy. He's not evil. It's just that you can't trust him. He's always playing tricks. And so, Coyote is part of this, though. And Coyote says, "You know, I think we ought to." give human beings pause and make them quadrupeds because I can run really fast and that will give the human beings the ability to run really fast. Mayak Dadat, which again we're translating literally as the hairy man, Mayak Dadat says, no, I think we should give him two feet. Like me, I can walk on two feet. We should give people that ability as well. And Coyote says, no, I don't like that idea. I think we should give him four feet. And there's this arguing among all the animals and Coyote says, I'll tell you what, I'll race you, Mayak Dadat, and whoever's faster, that's what th they win. So if I beat you, human beings will have four feet because I've shown that this is a great thing, a great ability to give human beings. You beat me, okay, people can have two feet. So Mayak Dadat kind of agrees to it, but then when they lay out a, a, a trail, immediately Coyote cheats. He's taking a shortcut. So Harry Man goes back to the group and says, listen, I, I say... Let's have a consensus here. 
the hell with Coyote. Let's give him two feet, which is what they do. Coyote comes back thinking he'd won the race, and he finds out that, no, the deed's done. They have two feet. He gets really pissed off about it, and, and that causes trouble down the line with Coyote. So that's, that, I think that's kind of a lovely story, that human beings, we have these, these abilities and these features, these characteristics, as a result of the animals who were part of creation. And I, you know, I I think that's kind of lovely. It is. I, I we've so, talked about that many times on Monster Talk. How there's this sort of like idea of that we have to accept the hairy man concept as a real thing. It's got to be Bigfoot, but yet we don't accept coyote as a talking entity or or crow or mm-hmm. snake or any of these other animals. But right. Yeah. It involves cherry pick. I'll, I'll say this: in 500 years, it's very likely that our our, our descendants will look back at us and laugh and say, those poor primitive bastards. And they thought corporations were people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> they were so silly back then, weren't they? We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. But yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so, so that, so the, the standard, the standard there for the, the interpretation that as, that Moskowitz Strain presents, especially in the older article, and I got to give her credit. In the more recent article, I think she's taken a more subtle approach. But but the, originally it was well, no, all these other critters are real animals, and so therefore my dot dot must be a real animal, okay? And because it's hairy and walks on two feet. Well, what other ha- animal is hairy and walks on two feet? And there's a little bit of a hint there um, uh, that, well, actually, uh, Bigfoot would not be the only animal that has the ability to walk on two feet and is kind of hairy. Um, uh, but we'll get back to that in a second. So therefore, Bigfoot must be a, uh, it must be real and that these stories are real. Now, I actually asked my informant, um, so have you ever seen Bigfoot? Um, again, this is a 50,000 plus acre reservation, and the, 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 I think most folks live down in the valley, uh, but there's a lot of forest up in the mountains. And what he told me was, well, no, I've never seen it. But my uncle did. And, and he, whenever I go camping up in the mountains, when I come back, my uncle 
kind of with a nod and a wink, says, sir, did you see Bigfoot this time? So I, I think he was giving me the kind of, well, it, it almost was like that friend of a friend, you know. Well, I've mm. never seen Bigfoot, but I know somebody who knows somebody who did. Right. Um, but, but, but the other thing, of course, is you know, when, you, when you enter into the reservation, um, there's this, you know, a, a, um, a bunch of sculptures and a sign telling you you're entering the Tule River Indian Reservation. And there is this beautiful, large-scale wooden sculpture that, uh, that very clearly is based on the image of the hairy man in the rock shelter. So, um, listen, Native people are – they're people, right? And so they're, they are susceptible to the same kinds of popular media that we all are. And it, it would not shock me – this is a hypothesis that – that Harry Man was never believed to be Bigfoot. But in the 1970s when this is big in all the papers and it's big on TV, that there are Native people saying, you know what? Uh, Harry Man is Bigfoot. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. Because again, point of reference. again, yeah, if uh, you go before 1975 and your people are not um, um, the hairy man. But now here's the other thing that I find incredibly interesting. All right, so I get this book, hand me this book, and I'm really, you know, I'm very grateful for it. By the way, when I when I, I thanked the the tribal chairman, I said, listen, I can't thank you enough for allowing me access to the cave, the rock shelter, for giving me this book. And he turned around and he thanked me for showing an interest in his culture. And it's just, there's nothing better than that, right? That's and it's awesome. like, oh my God, no, man, I'm just this dope working on a book. This is your land. This is your sacred spot. So that was really cool. But so I get back to the, the, the motel that night and I'm flipping through the book. And sure enough, I come to the story that Kathy Moskowitz Strain bases her telling on uh, of the creation of human beings. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. This will tell me all about how the hairy man, you know, Bigfoot created what wanted people to be on two feet because he's on two feet. And I get to it and I'm just going to read a tiny bit of it. From and this now, understand what I am reading is exactly what was written down, told by village elders in 1975. Um, their names are on this book as the authors, even though the book was published in 2008. So this this is as directly direct as we can get from the Tule River Indian people what their story is of who gives who what. So. Eagle and coyote made people by taking the clay from the earth and shaping it like a man and a woman. Grizzly bear, can I say that <laughs> louder? Grizzly bear said people should be able to stand on their hind legs like me and they should have no tail. So in other words, the Thule River people themselves, now they, again, there are references to the hairy man in these and other stories, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. And in some cases, in the 1975, they are calling him Bigfoot, but I don't think that's can be taken literally. Um, but so what? But what they're telling us is that in this consortium of creatures who give human beings their characteristics, the ability to walk on two feet is given by Grizzly Bear, who says, "Like I can do it." And now I'm starting to think. Well, wait a minute. Isn't Grizzly Bear? kind of one of those characters, creatures like the orangutan that doesn't fit precisely neatly in a specific category, human or not human, because they can walk on two feet. The only other critters that can do that are human beings. So are, in fact, grizzly bears, could we call them hairy man? 
Because mm-hmm. like we call the orangutan the person of the forest, the, 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 the man of the forest. And I wonder if that's the case. Now, I will now give you my, my, my next hypothesis, which I understand this is purely speculative. I go back after I read that, and I look at the image of the hairy man um, from the cave, the pictures that I've taken, and I look at it and I say, God damn it, that's a grizzly bear. Because if you look, first of all, I'm not, the hairiness is like, I don't see it. But when I look at the proportions of the legs to the body to the arms, no hominid or hominoid has ever been proportioned like that. The legs, the rear legs that he's standing on are short and stubby, crotch is low to the ground, his arms are wide and outspread. That proportionally looks a whole hell of a lot more like a grizzly bear to me than it does to any kind of an upright ape. And, well, hell, the, the Thule River people are telling us it's grizzly bear who, who provides or con- confers bipedal locomotion to human beings. I just think, at least as an alternate explanation, I think it's actually a stronger hypothesis. It's a stronger interpretation um, than, oh no, it's some upright creature like 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 a, like a Bigfoot. Um, but he, and here's the other part, and, and I, I bet you, since you guys do monsters all the time, you'll recognize this. Um, and Karen alluded to it. The hairy man, Mata Dot, plays a role, an important role, in Tule River Indian folklore. And the specific role he plays is as a cautionary tale. So when your kids are playing and it's dusk, you tell your kids, if you're a Tule River Indian, don't wander too far from home or Mayakdadat will get you. Don't go too far into the woods. The hairy man is there waiting for you. Or if you're an adult woman and you are, and acorn meal is a very important part of the diet, and you're grinding the acorns and you're leaching out the tannic acid and you want to let it dry, don't leave it alone because the hairy man will come and steal it and eat it. And that's, I mean, that's, my understanding is that that Yeti, in, that, that, in, that in many traditional stories, that's the role that Yeti plays. He's the bogeyman. He's the guy you allude to, you, you lie to your kids look, there's this really hairy, dangerous creature out there. Stay close and stay safe. It's also true of the water horse and lots of other uh, right? cryptids. They serve a, a cautionary role. Yeah. The right. guru as well, I think. And Yeah, yeah. So, so again, you know, from a complete, a different perspective, perhaps from Catherine Moskowitz, Kathy Moskowitz strain, I'm saying this, these pieces, they're all pieces of a puzzle. Right? And different people are going to try to put these pieces together differently. I think that, I, I, Lord knows, I'm not the first person to suggest that the hairy man is actually a grizzly bear. There are other people who suggested that. But it's just my personal experience of seeing him, hearing about him from a, a local uh, native, uh, admittedly a young guy, he's not a, a village elder, um, and then reading about them, reading about hairy man. And reading about reading the the story of the creation of human beings directly from the elders who told the stories in the 1970s, and then looking at how Bigfoot became big in the 70s, and that's when when the local when the Indians themselves as well are now calling it. Well, yeah, Harry Man is maybe equals Bigfoot. That, and that now looking at it and saying, well, he actually looks more like a grizzly bear. That those pieces, I think, form a more coherent story than. Oh well, no, it's. 
It's, it's tall, he's got hair on his body, maybe, and so therefore he's Bigfoot. You'll also notice that that in the, and this is not in the stories told by the, the Thule River people, but in the stories told by people, including Catherine Moskowitz Strain, that there are two other upright creatures to the left, well, to, to Harry Man's right, to the left as you're looking at it, one is oh, is considerably smaller than the Harry Man and one is smaller still. And she refers to them um, explicitly as Mrs. Bigfoot and, you know, the child Bigfoot. Family. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, the issue there is that, well, they don't really quite look like the hairy man, and they're not right next to him, and so uh, there's some other kind of upright creatures that I, I, I think that arguing that those guys are Bigfoot is is a real stretch, and in fact, oh, you hear a lot that the, the that this panel is absolutely unique. You won't find them anywhere else. Maybe if you look at the you look at them very precisely and in great detail, well, sure that's true. But in fact, I was at a site in California. Um, it's a place called Ayers Rock, and yes, I understand. Ayers Rock is is in Australia, and you're, there's another name for it different, now. Different name. Yeah. yeah, right. That's fine. But this actually is it's um, it's a boulder field in um, eastern California, um, and the, the largest boulder in the boulder boulder field is called Ayers Rock, and it's like the size of not quite a house, but it's pretty gigantic, and because of the, the the shape of the rock, there are a number of little tiny overhangs, and there's rock art in every one of the overhangs. And in one of those, there are there's a, a, a couple of images that look considerably like, especially Mrs. Bigfoot and and Baby Bigfoot, the Bigfoot family. Um, they're kind of well, the best way to describe them is their bodies are kind of like shaped like a circumcised penis with arms and legs. <laughs> So what do you think the deal is with uh, Kathy Moskowitz's um, strain regarding this source? Do you think that she's come across this source? I mean, you think she would have if she's written these academic uh, papers on the I topic. Can, I, can, I can answer that question um, for the 2012 article. I can answer that question um, with, great, with absolute certainty. The book that I get the story from is in her bibliography. And and here's where and and I think this is that I, you know I think we need to be fair to her and you know Blake I think it would be great for you to reach out to her and just ask well you, since you did cite that book that had this alternate version of it's grizzly bear and not the hairy man how come you don't mention it in the article and I anyway. think that's that's a fair question and oh, yeah, she has fair. a very good explanation and really good reason. Um, but pers from my perspective, personally, had I been writing that article, no matter what my preference was for what um, the hairy man was, uh, I think that was something that should have been at least mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say it a whole lot stronger, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, this is uh, published in the Journal of Relic Hominid Inquiry. Yes. So that's a peer-reviewed paper. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess what my question is, uh, first of all, shouldn't that kind of an error have been caught during the review? But second of all, how do you address this through science? Do you, if Let's say you're an anthropologist or an archaeologist. You want to rebut the conclusions. Does the rebuttal have to be published in the same journal? Or is it normal to address this kind of an issue in a competing journal? Or how do you reach out through the methodology of science uh, to, to, to disagree? 
Oh, I mean, I think traditionally it would go in the same journal. It would be, and unfortunately, again, um, I don't get, I don't see this, and I don't, I don't see this book, and I don't get this, this what I'm going to call a little bit of an insight until 2018, and the the journal was. I think, I think this, that second article, the, 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 that's 2012. So there's a six year difference, and I, I don't know of many journals that six years later would publish a, a, a rejoinder to an article written obviously six years before. Um, but I think it's I think it's an important question to address. Um, maybe she has a perfectly valid reason for. I, I, you know, I'm gonna I, you know I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna stop being so namby pamby about it and say, look, I don't think there's a good reason for not at least bringing it up, and bring it up and say, but the reason I'm ignoring that is because, or the reason I think that's not um, an important thing to 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 incorporate into this conversation is this. But you know, it's. It's in her bibliography. It ought to have been at least mentioned in that article. Now, I do not have. I don't. I, in fact, I just ordered um, a, her book on what is it? Giants, cannibals. Um, that book is Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters: Bigfoot and Native Culture. A link to that's in the show notes. And so, I don't know what she says in that book, but that I think the book is published several years ago as well. So, I don't know. But it's just, it's, it's, I don't, I don't think it is, um, it, I don't think it was a wise decision if she made a conscious decision not to even bring that up. Because, because of course, you know that a skeptic like me or skeptics about Bigfoot altogether have long suggested that some, many of the, of the, the eyewitness accounts of Bigfoot really are merely grizzly bears or black bears who happen to be walking on their rear legs. And so it's, it's kind of an obvious thing to address when the Indians who are telling the story of a hairy man and telling the story of the creation of humans and explaining why people are two-legged, why we are bipedal, when they themselves say it's grizzly bear Grizzly Bear gives that to people, and it's because he can walk on two legs. You kind of, I mean, talk about the elephant in the room that you're ignoring. You have to deal with that. You have to address that. Yeah. It's the bipedal elephant. There you go. In one of her papers, doesn't she, in one of the cautionary tales, doesn't she talk about the hairy man keeping away the grizzly bears, keeping Yes, but that's but that's also a story that it's you know it's folklore, folks. That there's no (laughs) need for consistency for all the stories to be the same. And so, yeah, in in one of the versions of the story, but then see that's the weird part too. That in some versions, in some some of the folklore of the Tule River people, the Mayakdadat is a helper. He chases grizzly bear away, so therefore he can't be a grizzly bear. But maybe he can be, you know. So he's he's a grizzly bear who chases other grizzly bears away. That's okay. Uh, but but and then in some versions he like helps people when they die. They have their soul move on. But in other versions he's the scary guy in the woods who you you warn your kids about going right. into the woods because of But that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Because folklore, it ain't science, folks. That's why it's called folklore. These are stories well, that are not necessarily going to be consistent because in, you know, in each version, that critter is going to play the role that you need him or her to play in that version of the, that version of the story. Well, I mean, that's absolutely true. But also, if you look in any, you know, any culture, folklore, mythology, there are absolutely the older the you know the older mythology the older uh, the, the more likely you're going to run into conflicting stories, but also 
They should all be mentioned who, anyway. Right. Who among us does not have a conflicting character? I mean, who who among us has like a, a spouse who isn't sometimes absolutely the hero and absolutely the villain? I mean, it's just it's. <laughs> Does your does your wife listen to this book? Does she listen to uh, the No, that, so here's a great example of why my wife doesn't listen or why I'm glad she doesn't. <laughs> so I love her no matter what, but you know, sometimes I, my actual my actual go-to metaphor is sometimes she's the kite string that keeps me flying steady and sometimes she's the boat anchor that keeps me from going anywhere at all. But she's always there as an anchor one way or the other right so i i wouldn't do it without her i love it so 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 what what was your relationship with your mother (laughs) (laughs) but no but seriously the complexity of these characters oh yeah sure they're probably from different origins but but yeah yeah absolutely but my wife does not listen no let me just (laughs) (laughs) so when i when i post this on twitter though she does read twitter doesn't she she reads on oh, Twitter a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you tag her. Yeah. Well, maybe this will all get edited out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. You edit these things, and never mind. I edit the shit out of them. I mean, fuck, I have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Well, so 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 I mean, here, you know, the the bottom line about all this is that these are wonderful stories, uh, and that's what they are. The the the, the Tule River people didn't produce these stories as a, a form of science. It was a, a way of explaining the world around them from this non-material perspective. And this is this is how we this is why we are the way we are. And this is why Coyote is the way he is. And and that's great. That's wonderful. And, and but in a lot of ways, it's like what was it? Uh, Stephen Jay Gould who talked about these. What what was his phrase? Non overlapping magisteria, which is just a fancy way of saying you know parallel ways of learning, of knowing, of helping people deal with their lives. And they don't have science and religion, or science and folklore, or science and myth. Don't necessarily have to, you know, crash together and one try to disprove the other. Um, and so. There's always that danger when you take a you know a, a story of folklore and say, oh, wait a minute, that's mm-hmm. what this means. And here's the, the funny thing about that, and it's something we haven't really talked about, and that is I, I'm quite sure there are lots of people who feel like we are honoring the, the intelligence of the Thule River people by saying, oh, this isn't just some bullshit story. This is based on what they've actually seen. It's a real animal. And from... From an anthropological perspective, I view it quite differently. I say, no, no, what you're doing is you're, you are, in a way, uh, dishonoring, I think, is too strong a word. But when people have um, a, a story in their mythology, and in, instead of de- denying them the right to have spirit beings and to have a spirit life, but instead saying, this is all material. This is all, these are all actual biological species, and they've just kind of misinterpreted what they are. That's... That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, the the Tule River people, at least until the 1970s, you don't hear anybody saying, "Oh no, this is a real creature who you can meet." You can just you walk down the street and you, oh yeah, there's my dot. Yeah, he hangs around here a lot. You know, he he breaks into the, the you know the garbage bins back behind the casino, but you know he's a pain in the ass. But that's that's not that's not what they're intending they're, and so you're not necessarily doing them any favor by saying oh, no, we're going to push you out of the way with your spiritual stories we're going to make these actual biological creatures that are just like you, know, you got beavers out here, you got mule deer and you got this hairy guy walking around 
that certainly I don't think was ever the intent of the Thule River people um, when, when they told these stories in the 1970s or before. Kenny, we've got a, a couple of last questions if you've still got time. I sure do. Yeah. Cool. So we just wanted to get into a bit of the science of archaeology and mm -hmm. to ask you how old are these works of art and how do you date that kind of thing? Um, the dates that I usually hear associated with this stuff is somewhere between a thousand um, anywhere between like 500 and a thousand plus years ago. Now, here's the thing that's blowing smoke at this point. Um, if in, a, in pictographs, especially if people are using organic material in the pigment. So if, for example, the black is ground up charcoal, um, you can take samples and radiocarbon date them. And so at the very least, you might be able to say, all right, this image, these black in the images right here, that's a thousand years old because the charcoal that was used to, as, the pig, as the pigment in that paint, was that wood was was burnt, was was um, part of a tree a thousand years ago. I don't think that was done here. The other thing you do, though, is you look at artifacts to determine, and it's based on style. If you see the same stylistic, um, um, see the, the same stylistic imagery in artifacts that can be dated directly or indirectly, and then you associate that with um, with the rock art. So, for example, in the relative uh, dating. Yeah, well, it, no, it's it, it, it's really a kind of absolute dating in this way. So, in other words, in in um, Utah, there's the Fremont culture, and that's a, an ancient culture known primarily by the rock art. So, you, you see a certain style of rock art, and say that's Fremont, and they're 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 anthropomorphs. There are anthropomorphs in Fremont art, and these are petroglyphs in which the shoulders are very broad. The, it goes down. It's like a trapezoid. It goes down to a very narrow waist. Usually no arms or legs and just a little square head on the top of it. Um, people wonder for a very long time, how do we date that? It's very difficult to date. However, these figurines were found um, in a cave in Utah um, called the Pilling or Pilin figurines. And I, I saw them this past March in a museum in, um, was it Price, Utah, I believe. Um, and they look... There are three-dimensional images that look just like the Fremont anthropomorphs. Those, those images, those, those three-dimensional images, those, those um, sculptures were found in the cave in which there also was a, a fireplace and charcoal. So the charcoal was radiocarbon dated. It's about a thousand years old. So if the charcoal is a thousand years old and if the figurines really belong in the same, they were in the same level as the charcoal. So the figurines are about a thousand years old. Well, then the rock art that looks just like the figurines, you are taking a couple of logical jumps there and saying, you know what, that stuff is probably a thousand years old because that's when that style was typical in this area. I don't know that anybody's done that in this case. Um, and again, we, we know they, that it existed in the 18, 1889, um, and there are stories that the Thule tell of it being there older, being there before. So based on on a lot of... of, of um, there is some speculation based on the amount of erosion, the amount of weathering, lichens growing on tops of the images. The guesstimate is something between 500 and 1,000 years. So, so you've talked a little bit about how to date these, but how do you evaluate these? Because you're coming from a Western scientific tradition 
and these are the cultural products of a different society. How does how does the like the tribal view of this uh, figure into modern archaeology when you're interpreting the art? Well, that's that's always the case. Well, it's, it's the case throughout in in other subfields of anthropology. We talk about emic perspectives and edic perspectives. So the perspective that it, that it's perfectly that it's extremely valuable to get the perspective of the people who are the descendants of the folks who left that art behind because they have a valuable story to tell and that's their story. At the same time, archaeologists can apply. Um, a, 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 and I don't want to call it an objective perspective, it's just a different perspective, to maybe question, all right, there sure are a lot of bighorn sheep here. Let's, when we dig the sites, do we find a lot of bones of bighorn sheep? Um, and if so, that makes sense that they're, they're relying on bighorn sheep for their subsistence. It's an important animal in their, um, in their, in their food quest and therefore not surprisingly would be an important animal in their in their spiritual lives and so that it makes sense that there's that kind of connection where perhaps people living today who are the descendants of the people who made that art would not even know that not you know just because well they don't hunt bighorn sheep anymore because there aren't that many left and you know they get their food at the grocery store um and so but but, but both perspectives are complementary it's it's not like well the archaeologists are going to figure out better what this means than the people who are the descendants of the folks who left the art behind. They are, they're complementary and parallel, and it's by using both perspectives that I think we get a better, um, we're able to put this stuff in a, in, a, in, a, in a context, more in a firmer context of what it means, both to the people um, who, who produce the art um, and for archaeologists who are interested in, you know, the, the, the economic basis of these folks' lives, or the um, e even the perspective of, well, all right, how do they make the paint? How do they make the pigments? That's an important thing as well. But you know, that's I think that that in a lot of ways, that's kind of like when I look at medieval paintings, and I just go, ooh, pretty, and yet you know the person making that painting, this is all about about a, an, a religious ecstatic experience that they that they had, and. That's important, but my my reaction, oh, that's really cool, is a valuable is a valuable one as well, and I think that's universally the case for art. That that you know, maybe we don't know exactly what the artist was intending. Be nice to know, but maybe sometimes it's also important to just to know this is how I respond to this. This is how I react to it. Um, one of the sites that I visited in my the fifty sites book, which I will not name again, I'll let Blake do that later, or Karen, um, is this the, the Great Gallery in Horseshoe Canyon. And i got to be honest with you, I, am, I, have no, I really don't know what the artists were intending when they produced that art. And there, there, are, there are questions about, well, maybe this was done during a period of great um, uh, economic upheaval and climate change, I, I don't know. But I do know this, when I walked into the three miles, three and a half, miles down this canyon and walked into this alcove where there were a couple of dozen of these greater many of them greater than life-size anthropomorphs just these with these hollow eyes and no arms and no legs i know that i had an emotional reaction to that and i felt i was in the presence of something really beautiful and maybe even sacred whatever that word means um and that that was valuable and that was for me at that moment that was enough you got the best job, Kenny. 
I love my job. But here's here's <laughs> here's the deal. All right, I'm going to tell you something now, but you know, leave it in leave it in the podcast. But what three people are going to listen to this? So it's okay. I, so in my in my introductory classes, I always tell the kids like the first day. I said, look, I'm an archaeologist, and when I te- when I tell that to people, when I'm you know, I don't go to bars not a, not anymore. But when I would go to a bar or at a family gathering or you know at a, at a party on the bus, when people say, "So what do you do?" and I say, "I'm an archaeologist," universally the reaction is, "Ooh, I've always been interested in that." And then I tell them the sad news. I said, "Look, you guys." Some of you guys are majoring in accounting. How many of you? And there'll be three or four kids raise their hands. I said, as long as you live, when you are asked, what, what's your major or what do you do in life? When you say accountant, nobody will ever say to you, ooh, I've always been interested in that. And that's just a dead certain fact. Uh, you, you do a, you make a, it's a valuable thing you guys do. But nobody says, you know, I always wanted to do people's taxes. Sorry. I'm sorry. Well, actually, I know someone who would, but, but that's <laughs> well, him. Uh, that's, well, that could, maybe. Okay. All right. You know, I, there's, there's one person in the world then. Maybe two. <laughs> but, yeah. So, no, I love what I do. I get, you know, I get to see stuff. and But I make sure. I make sure because, you know, the IRS is always listening. So when people say uh, in June, I'm going out to New Mexico to see some, you know, some more cool sites. And uh, and whenever anybody says, oh, you're going on vacation? I say, oh, no, 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 no. Absolutely what? not. It's a research trip. It's a research <laughs> trip. So the IRS, you sons of bitches out there listening to me, this is a research <laughs> trip. And I'm more than happy if you don't want me to take this off as a deduction on my taxes as a research trip. That's that's fine with me as long as I don't have to pay taxes on my book royalties. Speaking <laughs> of which, the opinions expressed on Monster Talk are those of our guests and not necessarily the opinions <laughs> of the host. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. you, you mentioned the, the weird archaeology research, speaking of research, uh, and we're just winding down the show now. But is there anything else that you're working on you want to talk about? Um, what I, I, what we did this past summer is we finished up this incredibly freaking cool site. I mean, you know, I do write about, I am a, in, in many ways, a lot of my career has been devoted to being a generalist and a popularist, right? I write books for non-archaeologists largely, and I want to get people excited about sites. I want them to go and visit sites. I want them to protect bears ears. Uh, and that's, that is a, an unpaid political announcement that site, places like that are, are just incredibly rich with history and these are places that need to be preserved and the best way to preserve them is by having people go and look at them and walk away going wow that's that's an impressive place that's amazing i'd like to visit it again i'd like my kids to be able to see it i want my grandkids to be able to see this amazing the amazing history of this continent and that history goes back tens of thousands of years not just to you know plymouth rock or whatever um and so, so, but I also have a part of my career where I, I'm a dirt archaeologist, and every other summer I am in the field. And for the last every other year since like 2011, we've been at, at been at a 3,000 year old um, steatite quarry in northwestern Connecticut. Steatite, also called soapstone, which historically was used like as you know bed warmers. It's a really super soft rock. My wood stove. Um, the frame is is um, is cast iron, uh, but the the tops and sides 
are all polished soapstone because it's really good at retaining heat and gives it off very gently and very slowly. Uh, native people in this part of the world, before the introduction of ceramics about 3,000 years ago, it wasn't invented here in Connecticut. It moved in from New York and points south. Um, but before that, if you wanted a, a, a container, a vessel that was fireproof and waterproof, you were kind of, you were, well, not shit out of luck, but in most places you were shit out of luck because there wasn't anything that really served that purpose. But where there were deposits of soapstone, and there are few and far between, this soft rock, you could carve it with just about any other rock because it's, it's, it is literally soapstone is literally softer than your fingernail. So you can, it is the it's the Michael Bolton of rock. <laughs> oh my god! The Kenny G of jazz, yeah, something. Like that. Um, but so so native people where they found it, man, they exploited the hell out of it, and we have the remnants of a quarry um, that was that was where the, these bowls, these forms, were being extracted. Um, 3,000 years, almost 3,000 years ago. And what's really cool is that the way they removed the soapstone, the way they extracted it from the quarry, is they did s at least half of the carving of the finished product while it was still attached to the, 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 the source rock. So that when this was abandoned, it was abandoned with, sev with seven, no, five bowl forms were still attached to the, the quarry itself when the site was abandoned. And the cool thing about it is that it's a, there's a concept in, I guess it's economics, called disruptive innovation, where you know there, there are lots of innovations that come along and that change life a little bit, and then something comes along like microchips or like the internal combustion engine that changes life. It, it, changes, it changes the rules of the game. And I think that that ceramics in uh, southern New England was a, an, uh, a disruptive innovation. Because now, where before, if you needed a fireproof and waterproof container, you had to go to places where people were harvesting that and you had to trade for it. And there's, there's soapstone bowls on the north shore of Long Island that date back 3,000, 3,500 years, 4,000 years. There's no soapstone source on Long Island. This stuff had to be traded in, and that's that's significant. But now, you know, in my image at this, the the, the Walter Landgraf soapstone quarry, named after this great guy, passed away a few years ago, who was one of the discoverers of the site, and he was a school teacher and a historian and an ecologist. Great, great guy, um, Walter Landgraf. Um, I, I tell I in my fantasy. Uh, it's like people are working hard at removing these bowls and thinking, okay, we're going to be able to trade this for deer hides and for food, and it's going to be great. And then somebody walks in one day with a ceramic vessel and says, eh, bitches, we don't need your shit anymore because clay is abundant everywhere. So although it's a different technology, there's a learning curve to that. Now you don't have to trade. You don't have to be nice to these people because they've got a resource that you really crave, and you don't have to trade with. You don't have to give them all this good stuff so that you get you get good you get this the soapstone in return. Um, it's now you guys. We don't need you anymore. See ya. And the, the the bottom drops out of the soapstone market. Soapstone futures become worth nothing. And uh, um, and I think we're seeing that this moment frozen in time. And that's super exciting. And we're just finishing that up um, now. Just um, 
given papers about it. And so that's been a really exciting part of, uh, of, of my field work in the last several years. Nice. That's cool. I, I, near to my heart, I love technology stories. So Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's cool. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure if this is a question you want to talk about, but I'm going to ask it and then we can cut it out if you don't want to. But we've talked about possibly doing sort of a weird archaeology bus tour. Oh, yeah. In, 20, in 2019. Is that, is that something you're still thinking is possible? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking it's possible. My life being what it is, I probably can't get on a bus and like come back seven days later. But, but so many of these places are so near to where I live that you know, that I can, I can figure out a way to be a part of most of this trip. Um, and, and I'd love, these are places I've been to. And by the way, you know, Blake, funny that you would mention that because by the time of this bus trip, the book, strange archeology, span 40 of mm. uh, the 40 of most mm. improbable archeological sites in North America will be out. And do you, you, you'd be surprised probably if I told you that in the discussion we've been having about what sites should be part of that trip. Every, this is all right. Are you sitting down, Blake? Are you sitting down, Karen? I am. I'm sitting down. I'm ready. <laughs> yep. I'm ready. Hit yep. me. By some amazing. I mean, I'm I'm talking amazing. Almost X Files type coincidence. All of the sites we're talking about visiting are entries in that new book. So I'm just saying. Wow. Just saying. What are the odds, Ken? What are the odds? Are the odds? <laughs> they are astronomical. I mean, it's it truly like like astronomical well. like. I tell you, if, if if some of my listeners are like me, they need to start saving their money now to be a part of this. But uh, no, it really would be. A t I think it would be a ton of fun, actually. Yeah, I really yeah. do. I really want to. First of all, I want it to happen regardless. I want to promote it regardless. I really want to go, Ken. So <laughs> we'll see if that can happen too. But I, 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 uh, I, I love this idea. So I, I, mm -hmm. I want to do whatever I can to help make it a reality. That's 2019, folks. It'll be. It, it, yeah. would, it would be lots of fun, and. And, but understand that it's not going to be us snickering behind the backs of the some of the folks who who believe these sites are like super different than what what standard archaeology says. It's this is how archaeologists understand how how we figure stuff out, how we conduct archaeology, how we answer questions about well, who was here, when was it built, what are the connections to other cultures, and. You know, it's it's my my perspective on this is that you know we got a good handle on who built these things and when they built them and no, it's not Phoenicians and no, it's not ancient Celts and it's not extraterrestrials and it's not an outpost from Atlantis. These are all sites that we have a pretty good handle on. We we know about how old they are. We know in some cases exactly who built them, um, and 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 that's that's fun. And and all these places are places that the places that are being chosen are places that are just really kind of cool to to look at as well. When I when I did the fifty sites book, that's ancient America, whatever. Um, I I made it explicit that that one of my favorite I, my, I have two favorite British isms. One is codswallop, isn't that great? Codswallop. Yeah, we use that in Australian English too. Yeah. Is that right? And it's the yeah. it's, it's the equivalent of bullshit, you know. That's Godswallop. But gobsmacked is my other really favorite. Is that also in Australian English? We, yeah, we use that as well. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely British that's, English, but we use yeah. it. So your gob is what your face, and gobsmacked is like, oh my god, yeah. it's amazing. And the fifty sites that I chose, most of those 
part of the reason I chose them for the for that is that somebody with no background in archaeology, no in, no previous knowledge of why this is an important place, would would look up at that cliff dwelling or look at that rock art or look at that mound and be gobsmacked, like wow, that's amazing, that's impressive, it's beautiful, it's really interesting. The, the 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 sites that will be chosen as part of this this tour of kind of weird, strange, bizarre archaeology, most of them, all the ones I think that I've seen listed, are also have that that same that same factor. That gob the G S F, the God smacking gob smacking fa I'm working on that. But but some of the stories are called Zwollop. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I so thank you. I oh, yeah. I'll include thank that you. because I, I'm serious. I mean, a lot of people. I think you know, if they're like me, they have a very limited budget and they want to go, so they have to save their money. They won't save their money if they don't know ahead of time that it exists. So yeah, let's make it's it a reality. Up. I really want to help this come. Yeah, to, come that, to no, pass. that'd be great. You got to save them and make sure that you have a couple extra bucks to buy the book. Strange archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> I really, you know, it is. It is. I, maybe I am shameless. You know, maybe it's. Maybe I'm not ashamed. Whatever. You know. If we time it right, people can buy a copy on the tour and get it signed. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And listen, guys, this is great fun. I love going on Monster Talk. Um, and uh, hopefully, Kathy Moskowitz Strain will get in touch with you and we just clarify a couple things. But yeah, no. I'll reach out to her. I'm actually very interested because I know science isn't like decided through podcasting, but uh, these conversations are great. And yeah, this has been really interesting. Regardless of her, her, yeah. Regardless of her conclusions, she's brought a lot of attention to oh, some yeah. really cool artwork. Yeah, and, so. and, and yeah. absolutely Good for point. sure, the 2012 article, um, which is much more polished, is is I I think is a much better article. And she clearly states in that article, "Hey, look, um, folk folklore and rock art. You can't prove the existence of an animal species of a cryptid." with that or certainly not with that alone and she just raises the, the the point that yeah but it's still worth it's absolutely worth studying um and i could not agree any more than i than i do with that so it's all good that's true well thank you so much for your time we we know you've been busy yeah well this this gets me out of watching the kids so but now i'll pay for it so you know uh, me yeah. too but yeah yeah <laughs> exactly now i have to make up for it Likewise, but I didn't have to help with homework tonight, so yay! <laughs> so it's great talking to you. And yeah, great I am going to find the hang up button on this. I think that's Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. Ken Fader about pictographs from the Tule River Reservation that some people believe depict Bigfoot. Hopefully, we'll be able to hear from Kathy Moskowitz-Strain on a later episode to talk about her research into this matter. Whether the artwork shows Bigfoot or bears, her work has definitely increased the profile of this important historical site. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, and the views expressed here are those of myself and my guests, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Save the date for a colossal PsyCon 2018. Bigger venue, bigger stars, bigger ideas, bigger fun. Las Vegas, October the 18th to the 21st, 2018.
SciCon is already one of the planet's premier skeptical conferences where hundreds of critical thinkers come to Las Vegas, the city of illusions, to hear from the leading lights of science and skepticism. For 2018, we want SciCon to be bigger than ever. We've even booked a bigger hotel. Come to Las Vegas at the Westgate Resort and Casino to see the brilliant and hilarious Stephen Fry on stage with Richard Dawkins. An opening night talk by Stephen Pinker on the ideas behind his new book, Enlightenment Now. The triumphant return of James the Amazing Randy. Plus, New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer, psychologist and memetics expert Susan Blackmore, the Cybabe Yvette Dontremont, virologist and advocate for science-based medicine Paul Offit, and many, many more, along with comic musician George Rubb, serving as Master of Ceremonies, a magic show from Banachek, author book signings, and of course, a Halloween costume party. It's true, conspiracy theorists, quacks peddling fake medicine, and the deniers of evolution, climate change, and vaccine science are bigger threats than ever. With PsyCon 2018, let's show them that they have just met their match. We'll see you in Las Vegas. For more information and to book your tickets, visit csiconference.org. That's psiconference.org. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.